impairment is real, but mm-hmm. disability exists at the an intersection of the individual and the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, can we re-examine the environment in which our students are learning? Mm-hmm. Um, because we tend to design environments to the mythical average learner, mm-hmm. um, and if the, and we know there is no there is no such thing as an average learner. Mm-hmm. And if we know that, then why are we designing environments in which students are bound to fail? Um, can yeah, we not yeah. design environments where, you know, who said that a student in kindergarten can only learn if they learn sit down, crisscross, applesauce, snowball hands, eyes on the teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we can respect the autistic sensory experience and not seek to extinguish those problem behaviors because they are ways in which they regulate. I had a student um, who used to um, sit on the carpet with his ear to the ground, butt up in the air mm. and make circular motions with his hands, but he was listening to everything that was being taught. just listened to Dr. Lakshmi Balasubramanian, who is a lecturer and researcher at Stanford University in the Department of Special Education. Prior to joining Stanford, Lakshmi worked as a special education teacher and inclusion specialist in a large public school district for 14 years. During this time, she spearheaded the design and implementation of inclusive education programs at the school district in grades K to 12. She has also worked as a professional development facilitator nationally and internationally on a variety of topics related to inclusive education and universal design for learning. Welcome to Inclusive Occupations, sharing stories of not just being invited to the party, but dancing. I'm your host, Savita Sundar. I'm a school-based occupational therapist. This podcast is a space for OTs and others who work with children and youth in education to be informed, inspired, and empowered to create an inclusive community for the students they serve. I'm so happy to be sharing with you all my friend and mentor, Lakshmi Balasubramanian, who has expanded my understanding and perspectives of several aspects of inclusion of children with disabilities in education more than any single person I can give the credit to. Every time I talk with her, I end up with two pages of fast scribble notes on a wealth of information and resources that simply flowed out of her. Lakshmi, I'm so honored to share you with my listeners on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the kind words, really do. Thank you. So um, can you share with us about your journey in special ed and your um, current area of research interest? Sure. Um, So, you know, my journey, I think, with special ed um, is kind of really influenced um, by my identity as a disabled person, Um, my role as a special education teacher, um, as well as the, you know, like the research that I conducted. Uh, so I started working um, in the Bay Area um, in special ed in 2008, 2007, 2008. And I think that I was um, I really um, drawn into this field um, when I was in India and um, 
had gone to some sort of national service schemes camp and I was staying with a family and I discovered that they had um, a child with a disability who they did not want to, um, you know, who they did not want anyone to know about. And um, I was, um, you know, I, I respected their, um, their decision, but uh, that kind of got me thinking about um, children with disabilities, what happens, how are they educated? And that's kind of when um, I decided that when I came to the U.S., mm-hmm. I decided to pursue a master's. And then, of course, my own educational journey affected my assumptions, opinions, values, because mm-hmm. I'm a partially blind person with no night vision and significant loss of peripheral vision. And it afforded me the opportunity to understand how it feels to never see what is written on a, a board. And, and, you know, my repeated pleas were met with open your eyes fully or you need new glasses. Mm. And of course, it's salient to note I was educated in India and Dubai in the 80s and 90s, where accommodations for the dis- disabled were rare, if not entirely absent. So knowledge of how I see the world prompted has prompted people, you know, they verbalize pity, they, you know, give me empathy, they laugh awkwardly, or sometimes increase the volume of their voice as though that would help me see better. So these experiences, you know, kind of inform my partial understanding of the reality inhabited by disabled individuals. And and that kind of prompted me to um, kind of learn more and delve more Mm -hmm. and also gain an understanding of um, what it is to be disabled. And I say partial understanding of the world inhabited by my students and their families. Um, so my research is in inclusive education and um, looking at systems, um, system, systemic processes to develop practices that support um, inclusive education. So I look at universal design for learning, tiered systems of in- instruction and in- intervention and communities of practice. Mm-hmm. You know what, Lakshmi, this is, uh, this is news to me. I have spoken with you so many times and I've yeah. asked you so many very, very targeted professional questions, I think. And I never personally knew about your personal background and your personal experience with disability. And I can, <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that. And Of and, course. Yeah, and I, I can totally hear you when you talk about the situations in India. And we grew up around the same time, the same time you mm-hmm. went to school. I was probably also in, in school in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've heard, I mean, I've I've seen so many people, so many homes, so many orphanages out there exclusively for children with disabilities. And we kind of took it as the reality back mm-hmm. then, right? That was kind of an accepted norm in our society. Although we felt for it, we tried to do what we could. Mm-hmm. Um, we just saw it so often. It, it is, you know, very common that students and individuals are shielded in their homes if they have if they're still with their families or um, they're institutionalized. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the reality of the third world countries, I think. Mm -hmm. So, um, Lakshmi, this season of inclusive occupation focuses on exemplars who have taken research on inclusion, put it in action in their schools and communities. Now, can you share with us how you are making inclusion a reality in your community as an inclusion specialist? So I I think that um, what what we've done here in the school district that I work in 
um, is really taken um, in, in my case, right? They, there were some parents who really wanted um, their students to be included. And I think most parents do. And um, I utilized their advocacy to kind of build off the inclusion, the inclusive practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was hired, um, I was hired to teach a K- kindergarten, first grade, um, you know, special day class. And they said, you can run it as an inclusion program if you choose. I said, why would I not choose to do that? And so um, I worked with my Janet um, teaching partners and we ran like a K-1, you know, we called it inclusion, but really what it was was mainstreaming, you know. And, and mm-hmm. so it, what really used to bother me is after two years, my students would have been mainstreamed slash included for two years. And then they'd say, oh, well, you know, your program is only first grade. So now they have to move on to other segregated settings. Now, unless they um, were really able to go to their general education classrooms at their um, home schools, Mm -hmm. um, or if their parents were able to really advocate for that, they would not be offered that opportunity and they would end up going to another segregated placement. And I really had trouble with this. So when one of the parents like um, pushed, you know, pretty hard, pushed the district pretty hard and said, no, I think that we need to do something about this. Um, I think that's when um, I used, utilized that momentum to kind of build a program in which um, we started looking at a conceptual framework mm-hmm. um, that looked at, okay, how do I provide access to the general education curriculum? What are meaningful ways in which students can participate and what are the support structures that are needed for everyone involved? So we took, I took the position statement that CEC put out in 2009, mm-hmm. 2010, and I put practices behind each one of those. Mm-hmm. So for access, we looked at universal design for learning and assistive technology. Mm-hmm. For participation, we looked at tiered systems of intervention and high leverage practices. Mm-hmm. And we used a communities of practice model to leverage family and professional collaboration and bring everyone to the table so that we could problem solve together and build um, these inclusive practices at school sites. It's wonderful. And you did this when you were a teacher in the elementary K-12. That's right. So I started this out in elementary. Um, I started it at one school. Mm -hmm. Um, Then another um, school expressed interest. And then we started working together there. Mm -hmm. Then I decided that it would probably be better for me to be outside of the classroom. Um, And so I, I, kind of took on a role as an inclusion specialist um, mm-hmm. and then started building, um, working with others, other teachers to build these programs. And so now um, in that district, there are four elementary sites and then um, two middle school sites and one high school. And in fact, next year, I think the plan is to not have it as a program, which I think is really the way to go because mm-hmm. practices, inclusion has to happen everywhere. It's not a program. It's a philosophy. It's a mindset. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to kind of jump into some philosophical questions. So okay. we hear this statement, um, all means all about inclusion. Mm-hmm. Right? And when we say this, a lot of special ed teachers and therapists like me, who work in classes that are um, segregated and um, where kids spend less than 40% of their time in gen ed set- settings, mm-hmm. even physically, Um, we may kind of shake our heads in disagreement and say, "Mm, I don't know. I mean, 
no i'm not saying we because i kind of have bought into the idea of all means all um mm-hmm. but i hear but i don't have a very convincing way to tell others who question this philosophy and say i don't believe that general education is the least restrictive environment for many students and they do need to have their own classrooms right what are your thoughts on that well to answer this question i would have to say that we have to examine the status quo which is that students with special needs have to be ready and prepared in order to be included students with disabilities are distinctly different from their typically developing peers and that mm-hmm. specialized services and interventions require a separate setting but let's for one minute flip that mindset if we were to flip those assumptions and believe that there is an inherent value in educating students with varied learning profiles together mm-hmm. students with disabilities are not distinctly different but require additional supports interventions proactive design elements and accommodations that the general education is a setting where all of those services and supports can be provided mm-hmm. basically what i'm saying is the mantra that is oft repeated special education is a set of services and not a place that has to really be implemented mm-hmm. and you can keep hearing that over and over again yes and mm-hmm. you can work as a team and leverage the expertise and insights of each member to figure out how to successfully include students with extensive support needs in genet for example a pt can address seating and positioning draft a mobility plan an ot would integrate how we view the sensory experiences of disabled individuals as just that how do we understand the unique ways in which each person regulates themselves mm-hmm. and not always aim to extinguish what we consider problem behaviors mm-hmm. just because they do not conform to a normative sensory ideal right mm-hmm. i i know impairment is real but mm-hmm. disability exists at the an intersection of the individual and the environment mm-hmm. um can we reexamine the environment in which our students are learning mm-hmm. um because we tend to design environments to the mythical average learner mm-hmm. um and if there and we know there is no there is no such thing as an average learner Mm-hmm. and if we know that then why are we designing environments in which students are bound to fail um can yeah, we not yeah. design environments where you know who said that a student in kindergarten can only learn if they learn sit down crisscross applesauce snowball hands eyes on the teacher right mm-hmm. 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 if we can respect the autistic sensory experience and not seek to extinguish those problem behaviors because they are ways in which they regulate i had a student um who used to um sit on the carpet with his ear to the ground butt up in the air hmm. and make circular motions with his hands but he was listening to everything that was being taught mm-hmm. he would have spent a whole lot of time making him sit exactly and for yeah. what to what to what to what benefit why can't we view that as his sensory experience Mm-hmm. and allow i don't know i don't know if you've ever watched um teachers in a staff meeting um mm-hmm. they're very you know te- teachers require students to sit and i say that because i was a teacher myself i am a teacher <laughs> myself i see where and, you're going with this yeah <laughs> and um you know but you have to watch you have to watch teachers in a staff meeting you know they'll be mm-hmm. twirling their hair there mm-hmm. used to be one teacher i used to sit behind who used to push her um chair back so <laughs> far back that i would almost think that she's going to fall off 
but she would never fall off because she was really good about regulating, mm. um, you know, the extent to which she pushed it. So uh, if as adults, we are able to do different things in order to self-regulate, mm-hmm. I think that students should be able to do the same. Yeah, I cannot agree more. <laughs> okay, so can you share a story of a moment or time when you felt that all the efforts you are putting into this mission of your life is so worth it? Something that brought a smile to your face. I know you kind of shared like the bigger picture of it, but any interesting little story that you can share? Oh, yeah. I've had many moments, I think, when I've smiled. And one in particular was Juan Carlos, a young mm-hmm. autistic elementary student. He had significant challenges in the area of um, um, emotional regulation and used to throw chairs, pencils, what have you, whatever was in his hands when he was upset. He had also been um, sent home slash suspended in his period, previous school as a six-year-old seven to eight times I remember working with him and talking to him about self-regulation. And he told me that when he was mad, no strategy came to his head because he was so upset. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's true. So, you know, we worked on building his stamina for regulation by practicing breathing exercises, mindfulness, and having some tools in front of him that served as reminders on how to use it. And then we also worked with him to recognize how he was feeling way before it got to a point where he had a meltdown. So after like two years of super hard work that he put in, Hmm. um, he was able to effectively self-regulate and, um, you know, as, as an IEP speak, right, was exited Hmm. from having a behavior intervention plan and any supports related to that. To me, you know, I remember um, that at that meeting, he and I were so excited. His mother was crying because to me, when we become redundant in a student's IEP, mm-hmm. that's when that's that's really success. You know, um, he didn't need my constant interference, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then I've done my job. Now, there are other students who may need supports and services throughout their school career. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, if I've worked with teams successfully, and I know I've done this multiple times to create that mindset around inclusion, then mm-hmm. to me, that is a success. And I know that I've had another student who, you know, has significant needs and worked with teams and, you know, one particular school, they just embraced it and ran with it. And that to me was um, just so heartwarming because, you know, at that time, that student is truly receiving a free and appropriate public education. That's wonderful. That's wonderful, Lakshmi. Thank you for um, sharing these personal experiences, um, a few of your yeah, many personal experiences and stories and I I can I can see that I, I feel like a lot of teachers may relate to what you're saying from um, mm-hmm. the examples that you've shared and um, the struggles and all this happened while the student was in a general education classroom that's right right yeah, yeah. That, that is that is so so powerful to hear and you didn't put him in a separate classroom to learn these skills so he can go back to the general education no I'm you know I think that that is a a mindset we tend to have that oh you know what Um, you need to be ready and prepared you need to have like all of these problems need to be taken care of before you can Um, do we ask uh, typically developing children to do that in kindergarten classrooms um do they have to be ready and prepared to enter kindergarten or do we just take anyone who comes through the door? Um, mm-hmm. If we think that 
we are teaching important life skills to all these students in Janet classrooms, why can't disabled kids learn alongside them, learn those same skills? Or do we feel that Janet is not serving that role and that's why we need all these students who are disabled to go to these separate classrooms to learn these so-called functional skills so they can enter society after school? What's the point if they can't enter society alongside their typical peers with uh -huh. their first experience? Yeah, yeah. And more than anybody else, I think their peers need to have that in-depth understanding of the disabilities that many in our society go through. And, mm -hmm. and kind of, I, this, is, this is one of my um, biggest um, um, areas of interest in my research too, how the majority needs to take the step forward to embrace the minority in our community in order for all of us to thrive really well. Yeah. And, you know, disability is the one minority anyone can at any point in time become a part of. Yes, totally. And we had um, we had um, Ferro's VR in our one of our earlier episodes, and he just released a book called Invisible Majority. Mm -hmm. it, it basically saying um, the title just says, says that every individual, mm -hmm. if, if you look at the community of people with disabilities, each person with a disability influences at least four other person in their lives. Right. So you end up, actually, they become the majority. Mm. If, if mm -hmm. you they look at that, it. I just heard about that book and I can't wait to um, start reading it. I just ordered it, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was in our, in our fourth episode. Oh, fourth, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, also, um, Lakshmi, what would you in your experience what has been like the the biggest barrier in making inclusion a reality in in, in your schools so um this is definitely you know for me a very loaded question so mm -hmm. i i'm, I'm going to take a little time and answer it because i think there's multiple barriers mm -hmm. and i think that mindset can influence whether the disabled student merits a spot in general education I mean, ableist attitudes shape those presumptions that students must act in predetermined ways to merit the label of normalty, normalcy, right? And ableism is, you know, uncritically asserts that it is better for a child to walk than to roll, speak, than to sign, read print, than read braille, or spell independently than use spell check. So the construct of disabilities is situated in the system of differentiating normal and abnormal and, you know, historically, you've seen that, you know, even, you know, educator, big names in education like Thorndike, you know, um, advocated to sort people into categories so that institutions could determine the types of jobs or occupations best suited for them. And so this practice of sorting still prevails in schools that differentiate individual students by ability. And... Um, you know, put, kids are put in classrooms, mild to moderate, moderate, moderate to severe intensive instruction. Um, so, and such across the board labeling practices leads to very intense surveillance um, because, you know, disabled students are excessively monitored. You know, for example, if you have a student who has slightly aggressive behaviors, they're monitored, they're categorized, and they're, you know, punished for that. Um, because they are constantly, you know, you take data on them, on their misbehavior, so-called. And, um, you know, that's a, you know, that's a, a level of hypervigilance and surveillance that tends to um, exist. And, and that 
in itself is exclusionary because because of that students are not allowed to be a part of general education right mm -hmm. and so uh, it becomes this whole idea of fit who is too dis are you too disabled are you disabled enough or are you uh, fit to be included are you an inclusion student these are the different things that you start to hear mm -hmm. um so i think that these are all you know um really barriers there's so much of ableist as well as disabledist discourse around um around students with disabilities and so that that to me those are you know uh, there are so many others but i think that mm -hmm. in itself is what restricts access yeah so how do you envision our schools say 20 years from now uh, you know um i would envision it uh, i have hope i think that we will hopefully have inclusive schools um we can use technology to our advantage to provide um i think that technology has really shaped many things and there are so many so many points of access that have become so easy you know Mm -hmm. because of that mm -hmm. and hopefully we are able to leverage that in a manner that provides access to all our students mm -hmm. um instead of you know um thinking that students have to fit into something that we have envisioned as normal school if we can envision that what we need to do is keep the student front and center and use technology to our advantage to individualize it to the extent that is necessary and then use all of these principles of universal design for learning to engage students in multiple ways to provide the content in different ways and to allow students to act and express their knowledge in many ways i think that is what i see for our future and hopefully all our students are included and receive what is due to them so that they can reach their fullest potential. Yes, I love it and it's basically shifting our focus from impairment to access and inclusion. Mhm. Mm and taking away prior deprioritizing fixing disabilities to finding how we can fix the society and make inclusion work. Yes, fix the, the, the environment. environment. Yes, the environment, yes. the physical and the social. I would say, yes, the and the social environment to make it work. Right, Lakshmi. Any anything else you wish I had asked you? Um, no, I I loved your questions and it was um so nice to chat. And I mean, I think that I this is definitely something I'm very passionate about and mm -hmm. um I enjoy talking about. So uh, I I know I think you asked. all of the questions that um i would have wanted you to thank you lakshmi thank you so much and uh, i i i only think that we've heard a tiny bit of <laughs> of all that you have to offer and i think you can make a huge impact in people people's lives and would it be okay for you to share your contact um, of course yes please okay. do can yes. i put it on the show notes show notes if people want to reach out to you they absolutely should and can okay. i'd okay. love that thank, thank you so you. much for the opportunity savita